Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, everybody. Hey. Welcome back to Marvel Reread Club. Hi, Steve. So we had fantastic two episodes with Riley Brown. We discussed some very important books. We are now on our own. It's my understanding you're trying to get us a guest for the Black Panther Month, which is coming up soon. How is that going? I have put out one feeler to uh, one guest, and uh, I am planning on starting to put out feelers to a couple of other guests uh, if I'm not hearing back. So Very exciting. Uh, Yes, and then next, uh, and for the June month of 1966, uh, we will hopefully have David Baldeon on. He has made a tentative commitment. We had him on once before, but that episode got entirely eaten. So all of you out there in podcast land have not heard it before. Yes. (laughs) Matt sounded like Matt's headroom throughout the entire thing. Yes, it was it was terrible. It's so nice of David to come back on. Okay, Steve. Well, this is exciting. We're we've got at least one month off uh, to just hang out the two of us. Let's go ahead and jump in with this month's books. So this is May 1966. Uh, we still have a few more Dicko books left. We are coasting through the end of Dicko, and then we are going to have interesting stuff happen after that. But let's go ahead and do one of Dicko's final books, The Amazing Spider-Man number 36, When Falls the Meteor. So as you pointed out, this guy probably should be called the Meteor Man, but instead he is called the Looter, which is a phrase one might associate with Ayn Rand, who Dicko was reading more and more of. It says on the cover, Spidey as you like him, in college, in trouble, in action, action, action. So they see college as sort of a selling point on this book. Like, oh, you know, we know you like him in college. I don't know how much that's true, but uh, I don't know how much the people buying the book were like, oh, it's so much better now that he's in college than high school. I just greatly admire the fact that Spider-Man is aging, that they are doing this book in semi-real time. That's a very daring thing to do with, with their comic, to not have it be like the DC comics, just endlessly in the same time period. Anyway, so Spider-Man number 36, we begin with a story that seems very much like an old-fashioned, like, amazing adult fantasy story of just there's a meteor that lands in the hills and a unscrupulous man finds it. And uh, I really like the panel where you're looking down through the loan shop's sign. I was going to mention that myself. That is really, really well done. Really nicely done panel. You can see the word loans painted on the glass and you're looking through the glass, but there's none of those usual sort of slash marks to indicate glass like you usually get in comics of this age. So, But it really gets it across in a way that is probably much more difficult than it looks like it was. Yeah. So then he is experimenting on his meteor. Gas comes out. He realizes it has given him super strength and super jumping. He begins plotting a life of crime. Peter is on the campus of Empire State University. Gwen despises him still, but is attracted to him, sends over another girl to invite Peter out to a party just to sort of prove to the other girl that he is going to say no no matter what. Peter instead says, say, that sounds like a great idea. But then he finds out that she says, I was hoping you'd come because I'm so anxious to have at least one boy with brains instead of those brawny athletic types. Well, somehow this is a red flag for Pete. It sounds too much like Betty. And so then he suddenly changes his mind and says he won't go to the party, which just proves Gwen's original point that there's something seriously wrong with this kid. Well, you know, I I, I sort of saw it as him seeing it like, you know, oh, it's like a big it's going to be like a big frat party kind of thing. And that's just not my speed. Uh, that, that's oh, how I took that. Okay, because all of the other kids are going to be brawny and he doesn't want to be the only brain because he, he right. won't fit in. Yeah. Yes, that, that, that was how I took it. But he says, he thinks to himself, I hated to do that, but I had to. I don't want another Betty Brant situation developing again. She only liked me for my brains too, and I couldn't go through that kind of heartbreak again. Good point. So then the looter is robbing banks. He's got a dazzle gun like Blue Beetle will have when Dicko moves to Charlton in the coming months. And like the cat had a few issues ago. Yes. And or uh, I guess he just had a flashlight he was using in the same way. But yeah. <laughs> so then Spider-Man is swinging around looking for the looter, can't find him. But it just so happens that they run into each other by sheer coincidence. And not only that, Peter 
decides to go to a space exhibit. It's too early to go searching for the looter tonight. I might as well kill some time in here. Gwen, also someone out of character, decides to go to the space exhibit at the same time. And the looter decides to go there at the same time to steal a meteor they have because his meteor powers are running out. Gwen is just absolutely exasperated. Peter does not notice that she's there. He says, I hope he'd see me and come over to me. But he's studying those displays like they're pinups. He is genuinely oblivious to the fact she's there. And so then the water attacks, and then we have the old chestnut of superhero comics, where the villain attacks and our hero in his secret identity has to run off to go change. And somebody sees this and assumes that he is a coward. So Gwen assumes he's a coward when he goes running off when the water attacks. They get in a big fight. As I think you pointed out online, he really should be killed by some of the stuff that happens in this fight. <laughs> yeah, particularly pa- the last panel on page 11. I mean, yes. that that crushed his like <laughs> lower head and upper chest. There is no way he's not dead. <laughs> but then in comics, you get away with this stuff like that old uh, hostess fruit pie ad where uh, the Hulk rolled the roller disco gang or whatever <laughs> yes. up in the asphalt <laughs> and again they will be missed yes so uh so then peter uh Luter gets away peter changes back into peter spider-man changes back into peter runs into gwen she has the great acid dripping speech bubble <laughs> hi gwen enjoying the exhibit i was until now parker and uh she thinks that he is a coward but she said it's interesting she says it's hard to believe anyone so manly looking could be a coward Pete wasn't, didn't used to be described as manly looking, but I guess he's dropped the ties now and looks more manly than he used to. So then everyone is making fun of Peter at school, including Flash. So Flash says, hey, Peter Parker, how'd you like to throw the old pig screen around? And Peter Parker says, I'd outthrow you. Says, if I outthrew you, you'd have a fit. And then Gwen is laughing. Peter Parker outthrowing Flash. That's the funniest thing I've heard all day. It's my understanding. I'm not a sports guy. I don't throw the football around very often but it's my understanding the goal is not to outthrow the person you're throwing the football around with that <laughs> like you're generally trying to throw the ball to each other you're not trying to like rocket it past their head or something that is i, I mean I, I i guess i took that to mean he was afraid that he would hurt him you know let's <laughs> throw it too hard by accident <laughs> and yeah i don't know it's one thing if you have like a contest to see who can throw the ball to throw this but i don't know so then spider-man realizes that looter is going to come back for the meteor and decent storytelling here he has to spend several nights staking it out it doesn't uh he doesn't just happen to show up at the right time and finally the looter comes back they get a big fight and the looter tries to get away with a huge helium balloon uh sort of like the one that the x-men were recently put in to be killed and it's a bizarre way of getting away. You're sort of at the mercy of the winds. But uh, as a matter of fact, it never even gets that far as Spider-Man is able to get up and join him and puncture the balloon and send him down to be captured. And that is the end of the issue. You know, this is, I think, a poorly remembered issue as, you know, an example of Dicko losing his powers or losing his interest in this book. But I think this is a perfectly fine issue. I think, you know, it develops the Peter Quinn story. It... It's got good, good character development for Peter and a perfectly fine story. I like the looter's costume. I find the helium balloon bizarre, but I generally like what the looter's up to. I like how it's done in one. I like this story. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I'm mainly seeing it as the Ayn Rand stuff starting to uh, really horn in on things. But that's mainly me. No kid who's reading this is going you know, <laughs> to yes. come up with any of that. I love the fight scene on the helium balloon, particularly page 18, where Spider-Man has connected himself to the balloon with the web and is sort of suspending himself uh, from webs while he's punching the looter. That just seems really well done. It looks like he's doing, uh, you know, aerial exercises, basically. And so, yeah, that, that that's quite nice. A couple of things that I had some little visual notes for. On page 12, the last panel, when the looter refers to his dazzle gun by that name, there's a panel where 
Spider-Man looks like he's in a Bob Fosse musical. <laughs> which, uh, he's yeah. ba- back- backlit, uh, which I find goes with the dazzle gun. It's like, you know, he's giving him the old razzle dazzle. Spider-Man has dicko fingers a lot in this comic, and that's sort of dicko fingers. And he certainly has dicko fingers on the splash page. His fingers are getting splayed out like crazy as a result of the fight in some way. When Pete ends up turning down the party invitation and he's saying, you know, I don't want another Betty Brant situation, he thinks to himself, why do I always get interested in girls that can't see me for dust? Yeah, that's interesting. Is that, is that anything you've heard about? <laughs> uh, also on uh, what page is this? It's one of the ones where they're up on the helium balloon and Spider-Man is uh, socking him. He's thinking to him. No, he's not thinking to himself. He's saying out loud, I'm I'm not even entitled to fringe benefits. I don't get social security or paid vacations or even a Christmas bonus, but it has a lot of compensations. I get lots of fresh air and I'm my own boss. Say, I'm not boring you, am I? And, you know, I'm just thinking, wow, Peter Parker was uh, in the gig economy (laughs) (laughs) decades before the rest of us. You know, these days, just like paid vacations. Christmas bonus, having your boss pay half your social security taxes. Oh, man, <laughs> that would be amazing. But that's not the world we live in at this moment. Yes. Those are my thoughts. Uh, and yeah, overall, a decent issue. Yes, perfectly fine. I think it's just fine. Okay, let's go ahead and have you do Daredevil number 16. Speaking of Spider-Man. Yes, indeed. So this is an important couple of issues that we're getting here. This essentially ends up being John Romita's tryout, more or less, to take over Spidey. Now, I've often wondered whether Stan was wondering if Steve Ditko's standoffish behavior was going to lead him to leave and he needed to figure out who could take over this character since clearly it wasn't going to be Kirby or if this just happened to be a coincidence and he had just said oh well you just did these last two issues so uh you did a really good job with Spider-Man let's just go ahead and keep you up I've always sort of assumed that this was an intentional tryout to see if he could replace Ditko but reading him through this time I wasn't sure sure I think it may be a coincidence Yeah, and, you know, Stan Lee for years said that essentially, yeah, I don't know why Ditko left, and it was a complete surprise when he left. Yeah. So, which, uh, I don't know how, you know, once again, you got to take anything that Stan says with a grain of salt. But that being said, you know, I'm not one of those people who's like, you know, Stan's just nothing but a liar and a thief. (laughs) You'll find those folks out there. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that, uh, you know, he, he likes to tell a story. Yeah. Uh, phantasmagoric penciling by Johnny Ramita, iconic inking by Frankie Ray. And here they actually give his actual name here, which is weird to have him credited as his um, pseudonym and then say, nay, Giacoya. Um, yes. Lacrimose N-E- lettering. Mm-hmm. N-E-E, like you would say about a woman's maiden name. Nay, yes. Giacoya. So first time uh, they've lac- admitted his real name in one of these books. Indeed. And so I wonder if they were, I mean, if they were using a pseudonym for some reason, why do that now? I'm not sure. Lacrimose lettering by Artie Simak. Oh, and I skipped Sagacious Script by Stan Lee. Yes. So this so, is, once again, I prefer Ramita inking himself. I think Ramita is the best inker for Ramita, but Frank Ray, it does an excellent job. I love Frank Ray's inking on everybody, and he does an excellent job with this book. Just not as good as Ramita would have done, in my opinion. Yes. So uh, we start out with (laughs) – I'm going to spend a little more time than I should on this first panel, but uh, as a caption, what do lawyers do when there's a pause in the day's activities? Same as you or I, pussycat. If there are no comics mags around, you're apt to find them watching color TV. I'm like, really? Is that is that what you would do? <laughs> and Matt is overhearing, you know, them, the other two watching TV, and uh, he's thinking to himself, "So many of that web slinger's exploits have been photographed. You'd almost think he sets it up an automatic camera and takes the pics himself." Oh, come on, Matt! You've been reading too many fantasy stories lately. So, yes. uh, but we are just introducing the concept of Spider-Man and the fact that they know who he is. 
It's interesting. We start sort of in Medias Res here where we see Spider-Man fighting the masked marauder. And you would think he would be seeing stuff that happened in Spidey's book or maybe stuff that happened in Daredevil's book. But no, these are things that we never saw. This is a whole battle between Spider-Man and the masked marauder that we have never gotten to see before that we're seeing for the first time as Daredevil watches it on TV. So we've got the Mass Marauder. He seems to be just a general gangster type, as far as I can tell. Like, he doesn't have really much of a thing other than having curtains for the bottom half of his mask. <laughs> he's, yes. he's, he's, he's not my favorite. Uh, but one thing I do need to give Ramita a lot of credit for is... Master Marauder has gotten a lot of thugs to dress up exactly like Daredevil, and they're going to go around and start to commit crimes as Daredevil. And Ramita does a really good job of making all of these people look not like Daredevil, even though they're yeah. wearing the exact same costume. He, he's that's a that's not a you know. It's not nothing. No, I was very impressed with that panel of all of these yeah. goons dressed up as Daredevil. And you can tell they're goons. You can tell they're not really Matt Murdock. There's a few of them that could pass for Matt Murdock. But for the most part, it's hard when all you're drawing of somebody is their nose and mouth to give people distinct noses and mouths. And uh, yeah. he really does it. Both Ramita and Chiakoya get a lot of credit for this. So uh, one of the thugs is uh, challenging the masked marauder, and masked marauder hits him with his opti blast. Uh, so yet another, you know, <laughs> light based uh, uh, attack thing here. <laughs> it almost looks like it just burn out his eyes, but he's just like, no, nah, it's just still he's just blinded for a little bit. Take him away uh, again. I don't know what the obsession is with light based weapons here. The thugs are going around committing crimes, Spider-Man and uh, attacking Spider-Man as well. They're trying to get Spider-Man in a fight with Daredevil because they are two of the more street level uh, heroes. Uh, and hopefully if they are both occupied, then they can get away with something like robbing a bank. Anyway, it, you know, the plan sets off working. Daredevil, meanwhile, is <laughs> uh, they have a thing where, where Karen is leaving the office and she says, I've no date tonight, so I guess I'll go home and curl up with a good book. And he says, sounds like a great idea, Karen. I hope you enjoy it. See you tomorrow morning like a nice professional boss would. <laughs> and she's thinking to herself, oh, Matt. Matt, you big goof, can't you even take a hint? And then, you know, she and he's thinking, I'd have given anything to ask Karen out to dinner with me tonight. But, you know, I'm just <laughs> just her thought process there is like, why can't you sexually harass me like any other boss? would? Yes. Although it brings to mind the uh, Saturday Night Live sketch about how to not how to not sexually harass somebody. And it was either John Hamm or like some famous football quarterback. But uh, in the end, it came down to be attractive. Don't be unattractive. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much the advice. Yeah, yeah, the real Daredevil and Spider-Man end up getting into a fight because Spider-Man thinks that Daredevil is uh, a villain now. It's a nice looking fight. Someone calls the cops because, hey, these two guys are fighting. So then the plan is going into effect. The mass marauder shows up with this truck with a big extendo chimney thing that comes out of it and uses some kind of uh, vacuum power, like like a pneumatic document delivery tube from uh, from the bank or old office buildings back in the day. Uh, yes, to trying to like schwup everybody up the tube <laughs> into the building and then schwup them all back down into his truck, uh, into a sports car in his truck that they then all drive off into. It is truly bizarre it is yes. a a bizarre plan like just maybe going in the front door would have made more sense uh and they're trying to steal the xb390 plans uh which is apparently a super advanced new car engine which just seems like a really weird thing to be stealing and the fact the mass marauder keeps on calling it by name saying this is the thing that i'm stealing you know you might want to try to have people guessing a little bit so then as you said yeah. he gets them he gets the plans they take away in the sports car that was hidden inside the truck daredevil and spidey are still fighting they've got and a i should say that once again comics pencilers just cannot ever resist drawing every car as a two-seater and why <laughs> why in their research files do they have no four-seat cars so it looks like at this point they've got like six goons crammed into one two-seater car 
Yeah, it's like a, a Porsche or something like that. I'm reminded of the movie version, the terrible movie version of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where they all end up piling into this 12-wheel car that looks like it's huge, but it's shaped like a two like a two-seater car and they end up driving through the alleyways of Venice in this <laughs> it's, it's different but it sort of reminds me of the same thing I never saw that oh no good <laughs> please do yourself a favor and don't so yes yeah, Spidey and Daredevil keep on with this big long fight they end up and it's stalemate and heading off their separate ways Parker finds out the next day that he had been distracted from this big theft and Je- Jameson is just livid with him for not getting pictures of this robbery. Now, so it is it, this is I mean, this does very much feel like a tryout book for Romita taking over Spider-Man because, you know, you not only have Spider-Man, but you've got Peter and Aunt May and J. Jonah Jameson all in this book. And we get to see for the, a little preview of Romita's versions of all of those characters and it if it was not intended to be a tryout it very much becomes one yes absolutely yeah he gets the entire supporting well not the entire supporting cast but the most important members of his supporting cast in here spider-man is then out looking for daredevil whom he still thinks is a bad guy and he's using his spider sense to track him down he didn't put a spider tracer on him did he No, I don't think so. So somehow he's just using his spider sense to guide him towards where Daredevil is. He comes up to the outside window of the law offices of Nelson and Murdoch and sees three people in there. A pretty young woman, a blind man, and another guy who's just sort of of average body build. So Spider-Man comes in. He's not really of average body build. He's a little pudgy. He thinks he thinks he's heavier, softer looking than I expected. No matter how flabby he looks, my spider sense can't be wrong. And then he jumps through the window and attacks him. Yeah, which, which, you know, people go back and forth on just what Foggy's body type is, that you'll have periods where he's, you know, shown as as pretty fat. You'll have times when he's just shown as kind of uh, out of shape. But then, you know, Wally Wood had him as just looking like a non-athletic but still pretty sturdy and healthy young man. Yeah. So they go back and forth on that. Um, And so at the very end, we have Spider-Man threatening Foggy Nelson and saying that he's Daredevil while Matt is in the corner saying, I can't help without giving away my secret forever. Then at the end, there's just a little caption, uh, you know, setting up next issue that's going to be called None So Blind. I do notice that Stan Lee misspells cliffhanger. He spells it like as though there was a plane hanger that was inside a cliff. (laughs) Yes. Uh, which is, I mean, I know. <laughs> he had that, no that, editor. It, he he had no editor. This is true. So um, anyway, yeah, this is, uh, you know, I'm I'm not a big fan of Mass Marauder. Uh, although, as I said, there are a lot of things about this issue I do like. Uh, there's a lot of time spent with Spider-Man and Daredevil just kind of fighting each other for no real, you know, good reason. I mean, they give them a reason, but you know what I mean. So it's it's a mixed bag here. How are you feeling about this one? Yeah, this is sort of a classic issue of heroes meet for the first time and accidentally think the other one's a villain and get in a big fight, you know, or in this case, they've been tricked into it. And that's a sort of hoary cliche that has to happen. It's sort of contractually mandated every time heroes meet. But <laughs> and it's a little much to try to get two issues out of it. Well, they come to it, but this yeah, is they, the first time they met because you know, Daredevil just started in Spider Man. So yeah, I, I, I was I was waiting for a break so I could bring that up. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a little silly that after having worked together in that issue, they can now uh, so readily believe that the other one is a bad guy in this issue. But it's fine. Mass Marauder is fine. Everything is fine. I'm not sure this should have been a two-issue storyline. I like the Ramita art. I like the Frank Ray inking. I think that Ramita has an instantly great sense of Spider-Man, Peter Parker, Aunt May, and J. Jonah Jameson. And we are being reassured, even though nobody may have known it at the time, that he's going to do a good job on the main book. You know, with the Mass Marauder, I really dislike his look of just like the big goggles and then curtains for the rest of his face. I keep on thinking that as he breathes and talks, it's going to look like Zoidberg's face tentacles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan, but uh, I do like his little truck and his little vacuum tube. That's uh, <laughs> that, that's kind of neat. Okay, yes. I'm ready to move along. How about you? All right, let's go ahead and move on to the Mighty Thor, number 128. God of Thunder and Son of Zeus face the power of Pluto. We've got a cover nicely drawn by Kirby of Hercules fighting a bunch of goons with his mace and then Thor leaping into battle to join him. Poorly inked by Coletta with way too many lines on Thor's arm and his eyes not matching each other. So then we go ahead and jump in. And I got to say, this is, of all the issues where it is tragic that Coletta is inking Kirby, this is right up there near the top because this is a fantastic issue from Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby, as penciler, as presumably co-potter, is just killing it in this bizarre issue. And we cannot begin more bizarrely with Thor is recuperating in Asgard. And you may love your race car bed. And you may think that your race car bed is the coolest thing in the world. Well, I will have you know that Thor's <laughs> version of that is so much cooler. He is sleeping in a Viking ship shaped bed with a huge like ram on the prow of it, ram's head on the prow of it, and then a like gargoyle looking down from above him. <laughs> and it is just the, I mean, if I could have any bed in the whole world, this is the bed I would have. Yeah. It, it's just, this, this is, this is Kirby right here. If you were, <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. It has no Kirby crackle and nothing cosmic <laughs> on it, but yeah, this is <laughs> amazing. And just, and Jack, you're not getting paid to do this. Like, Jack, nobody in your job description, it does not say to create the world's craziest beds. Nobody is telling you to do this. This is just entirely voluntarily on your part, Jack. It is amazing. He didn't have to do that. He did it for us. He did it for us. And then, so we have Odin goes and visits him. Meanwhile, Odin has to punish Seedring for his insurrection attempt in last issue there are some places in the world where they punish insurrection attempts and he is sent to a world of rock trolls and meanwhile we have hercules so i gotta say actual asgard is pretty amazing but this hollywood studios version of olympus is almost equally as amazing as asgard this is the golden age of the hollywood studio system and they are still building Amazing sets. Of course, it's really Pluto under his secret pseudonym, Pluto, uh, who is running <laughs> this movie studio and is showing Hercules around this amazing set. Wasn't this sort of the period when um, movies were feeling very threatened by TV? And so they were trying to have just spectacle and grandeur that TV couldn't match. Yeah, so exactly. I think that that's really kind of what this is. And uh, so then he meets his co-star who looks like a real Amazon. Gee, that's funny. And then he meets one of the things he'll be battling, which is, uh, wow, really packs a real wall up. Gee, that's interesting. And then uh, we cut back to Thor, who is recovering on Asgard, and they are zipping along in a rocket sled <laughs> with Thor hunting out the window with a harpoon gun and shooting it at beast fish, these gigantic... <laughs> fish with monstrous mouths and uh, just two arms each, which enables them to attack the ship. So they're getting shot at and they're like, well, we're going to fight back. And they start attacking the ship that's attacking them. And uh, one of them has to have a stool shoved in its mouth. And then the ship finally zips away. This vehicle that they're on, um, I was reading that as one of those ice sailing things that that is a real thing. You know, the sort of uh, uh, yes. three blades and the big so And there, yeah, I, I I think that basically just for some reason because of Asgardian magic, it doesn't need the sails. But right. <laughs> it's oh man, once again, it's just where does Kirby come up with this stuff? Where does he come up with this stuff? The harpoon gun out of the porthole that has – it's like the porthole can has glass that can open and close from the center, and he's got it partway open while he's under a bed of furs. Uh, <laughs> well, he's wearing a fur coat, and he's under a bed of furs, so he's all bundled up, and uh, yes. he is ready to shoot some harpoon gun out of a opening porthole window. 
And so, yes, then this convinces him, even though this whole thing has been sort of a sort of a fiasco, this whole trip, uh, this only convinces him he'll be ready to go face Hercules again soon. Soon, Balder, soon I shall be god of thunder, in fact, as well as name, and then let Hercules beware. Meanwhile, Hercules is still being completely bamboozled by everything that's going on in <laughs> on at no, this Hollywood movie studio. No one ever accused Hercules of being smart. No. <laughs> uh, but I love on page nine, panel three, I do have to say that Coletta did maintain something really genuine and nice about the way that Hercules is tilting his head up to yeah. look at the Amazon princess. Uh, it's still kind of scratchy looking, but unlike Pluto standing behind him, it's just a strikingly nice little vignette. Yeah, it is. So then... Pluto finally says, oh, by the way, we've got some paperwork for you to sign. Apparently, Hercules can't read or write. He just puts his thumbprint <laughs> on it. And so I know I know Hercules isn't supposed to be the most sharpest tool in the shed, but uh, I was surprised he couldn't read or write. And uh, he's had many thousands of years to learn. And uh, so then once, as soon as he signs the contract, the chick is up. Pluto is like, yes, I am Pluto. Your co-star is actually Hippolyta, Queen of the Amazons. You have now signed up to run Hades in my place, which is all very similar to the Disney Hercules movie, where it was a similar thing that he was tricked into signing up for. By the way, those goons I had attack you before are real goons. They're going to attack you again. Meanwhile, on Asgard... Well, not just real goons, real Olympian creatures of various yes. sorts or people. Uh, so before we go on, page 10, panel 3, can you please explain to me what the perspective is on here? Yep, it's pretty weird. <laughs> it's uh, we're looking sort of down into this endless stairway going down to Hades and it's unclear what Pluto, Hippolyta and Hercules are standing on. But, so so uh, I don't know how much of this is uh, this might be entire. I mean, it's possible this could entirely be on Coletta uh, or if it's not, then I think it at least would have been his job to fix it by having those lines that indicate the floor not get shorter and you know closer and closer together as they uh, as they go inward. Yeah, it's strange. It looks like they're on inclines. Yeah. It's very strange. Or floating, yes. in the, or floating in the air in front of walls or something like that. <laughs> Yes, indeed. So then meanwhile, Thor up on Asgard is feeling strong enough to go settle his fight with Hercules, arrives down on the planet, really nice panel on the bottom of page 13, uh, similar mm -hmm. to the cover with Hercules fighting a whole bunch of goons while Thor comes up. And then Thor instantly decides, nope, I'm going to fight with Hercules. Great panel on the bottom of page 14 of the two of them fighting back to back against the goons. Thor eventually catches up as to what's going on, finds out that Hercules has signed this thing to be consigned to be the king of the netherworld, and Thor instantly is like, okay, you got your own problems. I don't feel any need to beat you up anymore. You are all, you are, you are a downtrodden fool, and I am just going to leave you to wallow in that goodbye. And Thor <laughs> leaves, and Hercules thinks the Thunder God departs, shall I ever know his like again? So seemingly this whole storyline is just over at this point. Hercules is, is, has to run the Netherworld and Thor has no more interest in the whole situation. However, it says next issue, the verdict of Zeus. So seemingly it's things are going to pick up again next issue. Yes. Yeah, so basically Thor just told Hercules to go to hell. Yeah. I will say that this is one of Odin's less spectacular sets of headgear that we see on page 12. Just it, it is not up to his usual standard. But I guess you're not going to have, you know, not everything you're going to do is going to be a hit. Yeah. That's about it I have for this. I think you said most of what needs to be said. Hercules is tons of fun. Kirby is just having tons of fun with his crazy Asgard nuttiness. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, everything you want in a Thor comic. I always have to remind myself that throughout the entire first 20 years of this book, that Odin had two eyes. Then Odin lost an eye around issue 260 or so. And then he's been one-eyed ever since. And he's been one-eyed in the MCU, which is odd because there are so many one-eyed characters in the MCU. But it's just become so iconic for him to have one eye that it's I have to occasionally remind myself that he had two eyes for his first 15 or so years on this book. Okay, let's go ahead and look at Tales of Asgard, Home in the Money, Norse Gods, Aftermath, Script Stanley, Penciling Jack Kirby, Delineation, Vince Coletta, Lettering Sam Rosen. So we have 
the end of the Ragnarok story that Vala has been telling everyone. We have, of course, Thor versus Midgard Serpent. We have everything is destroyed. We see Surger actually destroying Asgard with his flaming sword, as we would later see in the MCU. And then the, you get a little preview of the new gods here. It's funny. We had an earlier Tales of Asgard in which the Norse gods sort of created Earth and Adam and Eve. This one sort of implies that it's only when the Norse gods are gone that then they'll be replaced with a sort of Adam and Eve type situation where we have Adam and Eve type figures on page four. But then they build a world that looks a lot like New Genesis in Curry's future fourth world comics for DC Comics. And that was the setting for... Kirby's fourth world comics is that the Norse gods had died in Ragnarok and these were the new gods that had taken their place. So he has a little preview of that. And so then Vala finishes her tale and everybody's listening. And then everyone's like, you know, that story that Vala just told uh, really made Loki look bad, didn't it? It uh, sort of said that Loki would uh, trigger the destruction of Asgard. So, uh, hey, Loki, uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and have a talk about that. And then that's where the issue ends. So we still have this bizarre thing where they were in the middle of this big quest and then they decided to come back and listen to this story instead. And that still irks me, but this is wonderful. It's fun to see the first real look at Ragnarok we've had and to see everything get destroyed. It is fun. We have this very fascinating little preview of Kirby's fourth world stories. He'll be telling at DC. And this is a perfectly fine little story. So one thing that I didn't notice until this moment, going back through this again, on the final page of Tales of Asgard, where we've got uh, Odin manspreading on his throne. <laughs> yes. Um, take a look at his torso, at, at uh, everything there. Look at the design on there. Start to see it, like with those two little circles as eyes. And then that little circle in the middle is a nose, and you've got some cheekbones, and then you've got teeth. And up at the top are a couple of little jester hat things. There is a killer clown. <laughs> Basically, Odin is wearing a killer clown head for a tunic. Once again, Kirby, what, <laughs> what is going on with you? All right. So, yes, I see that one of the letters is from Barracks 3113-3408 Student Squadron. Keesler AFB Air Force Base, Mississippi. So they're uh, they're continuing to get communications with the military. Okay, that is it for Thor 128. Why don't you pick up with Tales to Astonish 79? With the same, the same yes. guest star. Lee seems to know he's got a keeper with Hercules, and I guess he figures Hercules will sell books because he was on the cover of Thor, and now here he is on the cover of Tales to Astonish. Uh, although he seemed to be a little bit wiser with Hercules and didn't really give him his own book because he really works better as a foil for other folks, which he did not do with the modern version of Submariner, which uh, I feel is kind of the same way. See, I love, I can never get enough Hercules. And I, one of my favorite Marvel books from the last 20 years was Greg Pak's run, uh, Greg Pak and Fred Van Lens run on Hercules. I I think he took way too long to give Hercules his own book. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure he could handle it, but I'm just saying that I don't think that Stan Lee could pull it off at this point with everything else he was doing, just as Namor isn't coming across uh, as well as I would like. All right, so Prince Namor the Submariner, when rises the behemoth, or, you know, I really wish they put the O in there so I could say the behemoth. We should say that the cover is... Hulk fighting Hercules, but that's not that's going to be the second story in this book. So that's why yes. we were just talking about Hercules. But first, we'll talk about the first story in the book, which does not have Hercules, When Rises the Behemoth, starring Namor. And I got to say, I am so happy. I am yeah. a happy man. Now, this is a story by Stan Lee. Now, this is penciling by Adam Austin. Now, this is delineation by... Bill Everett. Bill Everett is now inking both the first half and the second half of this book. Well, I should say that he is... Finishing penciling and inking the second half of this book uh, on the Hulk, he is just inking the first half of this book, and it is fascinating how different they are. The first half of this book yes. really looks like Gene Colan. It does not, even though Bill Everett created the Submariner and he's back on the book, he is really not bringing a lot. He is just servicing Colan's pencils for the most part in the first half of this book. Whereas in the second half of this book, where Kirby is just doing layouts and Everett is doing finishing pencils as well as things, it looks very much, it doesn't look like Kirby, it looks like Bill Everett. Whereas the first half does not look like 
the lever, it looks like Gene Cullen. Uh, for the most part, yes. The shadows and textures that Everett is able to bring out in here are really amazing. So like that splash page on the first page, if this had been inked by Coletta, it I think it would have been more of a mess. Uh, but as it is, uh, that whole cluster of soldiers in the upper left, the six soldiers in the upper left hand quadrant of the page, the spotting of blacks in there really makes it look like it's at night and they're under a street lamp. And so you've got, you know, it's generally pretty dark. You've got some very dark shadows and then you just have some highlights here and there. Really, really nicely done. Oh, my God. I've been waiting for this for so long. Gene <laughs> Cohen is you need shadows. You can't ink Gene Cohen without shadows. You can't Gene Cohen without using a brush. And the weight of these people, of the soldiers facing the Submariner under Bill Everett's masterful brush is just amazing. I mean, we've suffered through so many issues of Cohen inked by Coletta. And to have this right away from the first page, it's wonderful. Yes. So last issue, the puppet master was controlling uh, Submariner and using him just to commit petty crimes, basically, <laughs> like bank yes. robbery and stuff like that. The puppet master is still controlling Submariner, telling Submariner, you can't return to me because you won't you'll lead them to me and you can't get caught. So, you know. Don't do either of those things at any cost. So Submariner is, you know, ripping up a light pole and swinging it at the soldiers. He then flies up to the top of a building and looks like he's about to pull down a sign in a way that is going to be dropped onto the soldiers. Uh, we, again, have another one of those dubious choices for what's a splash page and not on page four. Uh, we have a splash page of Submariner up on a ledge in front of that sign he's about to pull down with the gunshots seeming to come from an angle that would not have them coming from those soldiers. <laughs> Presumably, they've got some snipers on a nearby rooftop. But uh, yeah, why is that a splash page? I don't quite get it. One of the soldiers is actually able to wing Submariner there, uh, and I wouldn't think Submariner would be that hurt by just a rifle shot, but he clearly is in some pain. This is when he tries to knock the sign off. The soldiers go running, but then Samariner doesn't finish the job and just leaves. Or at least that's what Stan Lee tells us. Visually, it is very unclear whether or not that sign actually ended up falling. So Submariner has the instinct, even though he's under Puppet Master's control, that he needs to return to the water to regain his strength. So he goes and finds the George Washington Bridge, jumps off of it into the water. Meanwhile, in Atlantis, the behemoth has been unleashed. As we saw last issue, the behemoth is apparently like a... Uh, a doomsday mutually assured destruction type weapon, which is a giant creature that is awakened in case Atlantis is destroyed in order to destroy whatever destroyed it. But the drilling that Henry Pym was doing uh, has awakened it anyway, and it is starting to run amok in Atlantis. We once again on page nine have Dorma shedding a tear on the bottom of the ocean that she is wiping off of her face. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny, with the whole question of can regular Atlanteans swim or not, there's still a lot of confusion about that. Everyone seems to be walking. Dorma has to take a ship up to the surface, but then she's thinking, by swimming to the surface, I could never locate Namor in time. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a mystery wrapped in an enigma, all tidied up with a little conundrum bow. So she's able to find Namor on the side of the bridge. She apparently doesn't seem to need to breathe water when she comes out, out of the water there. I think she's wearing a helmet. Is she? Yeah. On, on page 10, last panel. Page 10, last bit. Yes, both the fourth and sixth panel of this, the way it's colored here, it looks like she's wearing a helmet. Okay, I see no indication of a helmet in any way, shape, or form in the version on Marvel Unlimited. There's Strange. A, there's a big black line around her head. Not here. What? You're not seeing a big black line around her head? I am not. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, there is <laughs> one here. Again, maybe there was a paste up that's fallen off over time. So anyway, Saltwater has awakened him and gotten him to break the control of the Puppet Master. This apparently has some sort of feedback that ends up breaking the puppet the Puppet Master is using to control him. Which I'm tired of. I'm tired of people breaking the Puppet Master's control without ever without, you know, actually being there. 
you know, we've seen this many times when people fight the puppet master. They shrug off his control and it shatters the puppet, even though they're not in the same room. I feel like this is tremendously anticlimactic. What is that German word for a face in need of a fist? What you're saying is that's puppet master right now. Exactly. <laughs> you're sick and tired of him just having his plans foiled and having nothing else bad happen to him. And uh, yeah, I love the effect that Bill Everett gives on page 11, panel four, for the undersea fortifications that Krang has been exiled to. Uh, just a really nice kind of ethereal look through the water. Yeah, so really nice. Krang, so Krang is seeing that this might be his opportunity while something is going wrong with Submariner. He figures out it's the Puppet Master and then shows up at the Puppet Master's to uh, command him to start doing his will. Then we return to Atlantis and we find that the Behemoth is there ready to fight Namor, uh, who still seems to be clutching his shoulder in pain, which once again seems a little out of character. So it's interesting that the whole issue looks just like pure colon, finally the colon we've never gotten to see on this book before. And there's very little bit of effort in this book, except for this last panel where the behemoth looks more effort than Colin. All right. So uh, Incredible Hulk, The Titan and the Torment, Hulkish Story by Stan Lee, Hulkable Layouts by Jack Kirby, Hulking Artwork by Bill Everett, Hulksome Lettering by Artie Simak. So we'd had uh, in the previous issue, Zaxxon, who is the scientist who has replaced Bruce Banner at the army base, has trapped the Hulk and is trying to, he's in some sort of like Iron Man Mark I, or would that be Mark II, armor type thing, and he's using some sort of a gun that is supposed to essentially suck the ener- the organic energy out of the Hulk, presumably so he can use it himself. Well, clearly, this is a very major villain who is going to be around for a very <laughs> long... Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. He's, he was only around for a few pages in the previous issue and just a few pages this issue. Then accidentally points his gun at the wall and kills himself unceremoniously on panel four of page two. Yeah, uh, his his own gun kills him and the Hulk is like, oh, good, he's out of my way. I, I noticed we don't have the abs problem that we had in the previous issue with the, with the Hulk. His abs look a little bit more normal. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the Hulk goes ahead and jumps away to go do stuff. Of course, now there's a dead body where the Hulk had been, so everyone's like, aha, we knew he was a killer. Then we get, and I think you've pointed out that Stan Lee seems to be experimenting more and more with enmeshing these stories with each other. We've got Hercules on his train ride out to Hollywood. So this presumably happens in between last month's Thor and this month's Thor, I guess. No, this would be um, like this would be like at least three issues ago in Thor, because we've had Thor Thor's adventures in Hollywood going for several issues now. But this yeah, is you're right. before that. So this is like three months ago in Thor comics. Uh, I, it would be interesting to look up the uh, Marvel index for these, if there was one made for either of these books, uh, about where these things fall in continuity with each other. So anyway, Hercules is just loving eating on the train and it's like oh dude you know yeah sure build up your strength that food he's like i have no use for that my strength is unlimited i am eating for pleasure Uh, (laughs) trying to listen to the radio but the radio he ends up uh, not liking it when news comes on and smashing it Uh, i love the look of a hollywood agent on page four panel three that is just spectacular looking so talbot and rick jones are heading off to try to find the Hulk wherever he has gone so that uh, they're bringing Rick Jones along so that he can hopefully talk down the the Hulk since they know that he can do that. They Um, talk to Betty before they take off and Betty is back to having brown hair. Her hair color was gray last time we saw it and now it is brown. It was blonde when I was growing up reading the comics. For some reason, Betty's hair color always off model. Well, I, I think that probably Betty went gray prematurely, and so she was just dyeing her hair the entire time. So, uh, you know, she just switched eventually from brunette to blonde. Yes. So <laughs> the army does find the Hulk, and instead of waiting to try to get to him and having Rick actually talk to him, like was the supposed plan, they go ahead and start firing at him from planes. The Hulk rips up some train tracks that he finds beneath him and throws them at the planes with uh, as projectiles. Of course, we see all of the pilots 
jumping out with their parachutes to safety. Um, the train has to stop, and it turns out this is the train with Hercules in it. So Hercules comes out and challenges him, and we have a great knockdown dragout fight between the two of them, which is a great fight to have. These are two of the strongest characters in the Marvel Universe, and it is really nice to see them go at each other. Uh, on the bottom of page seven, at one point, when Hercules has just gotten actually a really hard punch in the chin, he, he says to himself, by the zesty zither of Zeus. Never did I suspect such power. <laughs> I'm like, I need to start using that in regular conversation. That should be my new exclamation of uh, of shock and amazement. By the zesty <laughs> but, zither of Zeus. Yeah, I'm going to say that. I will hold you to that. A rare nine-panel Kirby page on page eight. But Truck and Captain America had a nine-panel page recently okay maybe so but yeah this is out of character for him by the way one thing i keep on meaning to bring up in these recording sessions and keep on forgetting and this reminds me one thing i've noticed reading these things on a computer screen especially i usually read them actually on my phone which you know i have to zoom things way in and i've noticed that as i do that the top row of panels in kirby's three row layouts is almost always a little bit taller than the other two rows down below. And I wonder if that was a conscious thing of, you know, something about storytelling that he's found that having that top row be a little bit taller does something for him or how much it is just that he might not be going ahead and laying this out as precisely with rulers and everything as some other people do. And he just has a tendency to draw that first uh, row a little bit taller. Don't know. I don't know. Anyway, Hercules stuffs Hulk into a hole in the ground, basically, and thinks he's won. Hulk just comes out from under this you know, small mountain, <laughs> lifting the entire mountain, basically, and throwing it at Hercules. But then the Air Force attacks again, just ends up destroying the boulder that Hercules has just caught, and Hulk jumps away. At this point, Hercules is able to lift each of the train cars individually and carry them to the other side of the tracks so that their uh, trip is not delayed. And we see a uh, angry and dejected and lonely looking Hulk. And it tells us that in the next issue, we are getting the return of Tyrannus, which is interesting. Or Tyrannus. Um, or so Tyrannus, sure. We've never agreed on a pronunciation of that. So... I think that it's a shame. I like Saxon. I feel like Saxon is just very quickly dealt with in this issue, very quickly and permanently dealt with. I thought his organic energy was uh, something that we could have gotten some time out of. I guess maybe they decided, nope, his character design looks too much like Iron Man. Let's just kill him off. But I can't complain about a big fight with Hercules. I love big fights with Hercules. Marvel Comics will get lots of mileage out of big fights with Hercules over the years. Oh, yeah. And I love it. I just wish they hadn't been in such a hurry to get to it. Um, so another couple of minor things I'm, I missed, uh, I figured out as I'm looking back at my notes. On page seven, well, first of all, there's a really fun panel of Hercules swinging the Hulk around by one foot. But I generally really like a lot of what Bill Everett does. But one thing that can be a bit of a problem is he can do too much feathering and too fine a feathering. So one of the real rules that I was taught when I was first learning to be an inker, is you need to make sure not to have lines so thin that they won't reproduce cleanly. Uh, and on page seven there, all of that feathering on the Hulk seems unnecessary and it's too small and that it all seems to blend into each other. That bugs me a little bit. And there are some other places in here where he's got various texture lines or something like that that are so close together and so thin that they don't really uh, work very well for me. Yeah, um, I, I have a problem with it. Yeah, I, I I I got that, but I'm just uh, I'm just saying that's something that uh, that jumped out at me. And there have been some other places I've noticed it, but that's one that I noted in particular. On page two, they keep on going back and forth on this stuff a little bit, and we keep on getting some very oblique references to this thing that will become a very hard and fast rule uh, by our 
period. But uh, on page two, it says at one point, indeed, the murderer Zaxxon has made his w- one miscalculation. Even he cannot suspect that Bruce Banner's gamma rays have miraculously given the Hulk the power to grow stronger rather than weaker so long as his rage keeps mounting. So uh, we're once again starting to solidify the idea that uh, the angrier the Hulk gets, the stronger Hulk gets. Yeah. So what do you think of the everly looking art in the Hulk half? This does not feel like Kirby. This feels like ever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's not quite as weird as as it looked in the previous issue. I mean, there is still a little bit of weirdness to it, some angularity to uh, parts of the Hulk's face that um, are a little bit strange, uh, some sort of flatness to his torso, even though you see the musculature there with shadows, it still looks perspective wise like it's kind of flat. Um, I, I already mentioned some of the stuff about some of the lines that are too fine and end up, um, you know, kind of not reproducing the way that uh, it looks like they should. But those are relatively minor quibbles. Uh, Yes, this does definitely look more like Everett than like Kirby. uh, And it is tons of fun. And I mean, I will take this over most other people (laughs) who they've had doing this job in this case but yeah those are just you know a few you know once again i the the value i i supposedly bring to this is the fact that i was a comics inker for a while so i'm looking at the inking and telling you things that look like they break the rules that i was taught um but yeah i i i like it yeah i have i have also frequently been accused of being too fine so i can understand I, I I sympathize with what I've ever done this. Um, yes. so, well, well but, I, I do seem to remember that you were once told that you have mad-ass junk in your trunk. So, yes. you know, there's that. I was yes. a gay man in my college was said to another gay man in my college, I'm not saying that Bird's attractive, but he does have mad-ass junk in his trunk. So uh, <laughs> I was. And that, that gay man who heard this ran to me to tell me this. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Let's go ahead and do the X-Men number 20 for our final book this episode. Our title is simply I, Lucifer, Nuff Said, featuring the untold story of how Professor X lost the use of his legs. So I love this issue. So we've sort of had this apocalypse happen where both Lee and Kirby have left the book. Jay Gavin has gradually taken over totally from Kirby on art. And this issue, we have Roy Thomas taking over from Lee on writing and you would think this would be a disaster, that this is, you know, just some kid off the street who does not have Lee's years of service, and you would think this would be a disaster. Well, I think this is a great issue that is a great example of what you want to have happen when a new writer takes over a book. When a new writer takes over a book, you want them to go like, okay, well, what does the audience want? And the audience wants a more satisfying extension of stories that were dropped unceremoniously before. The audience wants to go ahead and get out the pent-up potential energy that was unreleased before. And before we had a phrase, unsatisfying story in which Xavier ran into Lucifer and is like, oh, you're the man who cost me the use of my legs. But it went completely unexplained. Lucifer's entire motivation and whole reason for being went entirely unexplained in that issue, and it wrapped up very unsatisfactorily and moved on. Well, Roy Thomas is having none of this. He is like, let's go ahead and figure out what's going on with Lucifer and Savior's legs. I really like this issue. What do you think of this issue? Uh, yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. And I thought that, uh, you know, as you said, Roy Thomas, this seems to be the first issue that he's had and you know once again uh, with the whole marvel method it's sort of difficult to, to you know know who's actually doing more of the plotting but you know the one where roy thomas first gets full writing credit and um yeah he goes ahead and says okay well let's pick up a bunch of threads that had already been here and just go with that and that way i'm not just like making up new stuff uh but i'm just sort of picking up things and exploring them so we begin with the Bob and Eunice wearing X-Men outfits. Now, Jay Gavin does not do a great job of making Eunice look like, well, the main way, obviously the Bob looks like the Bob. That's not, that's not hard. Eunice, it's hard to tell he's got a force field. It's hard to tell he's Eunice, except for they are both smoking. Looks like Eunice is smoking <laughs> a cigarette and Bob is smoking a cigar and they are robbing a bank. Last time we saw Eunice, one of his lines was, uh, what, uh, uh, no blamed cigarette is going to stop me from smoking it. <laughs> That's right. So he is, he is seemingly solved that problem. And um, so they're robbing a bank, claiming to be X-Men, claiming like, yep, it's us, the X-Men. We rob banks. We're bad guys. And then 
Meanwhile, we get the X-Men are hanging out with Professor Xavier in their civilian uniforms. Scott, meanwhile, is like, I can't be around these people anymore. I'm going to pack up my suitcase and leave. Meanwhile, we see that Eunice and the Bob are seemingly working for Lucifer, who is back, but I guess they don't know they're working for Lucifer. He is completely manipulating them. Little does anyone, even my two masquerading minions, realize that I, Lucifer, have in mind a purpose far more complex, far more sinister. So meanwhile, then Bob and Eunice stop robbing banks and decide to just get in the wrestling ring and fight each other. Eunice is back to wearing his menorah pants. Um, (laughs) And... They are fighting each other, but then it looks like they're each in their normal milieu because first they're in the wrestling rink where we first met Eunice, and then the Bob seems to still be in a carnival wagon where he is hanging out with Eunice. They go back to rob another bank, and it turns out Scott can't stay away from the X-Men for long. He sees them robbing a bank. Scott gets dressed up as Cyclops. Apparently, he brought his uniform along with him just in case he ever needed it again, and he confronts them, and he holds them off long enough for the rest of the X-Men to come, and they all get in a big fight with Bob and Eunice, who then eventually accidentally fall onto a subway train and get away. We've landed on a subway train. That panel is fantastic. Panel one on page 11? I guess. Oh! I mean, it's a little, it's a cross-section of, yeah, I mean, it's a nice panel. They, um, They have accidentally blasted a hole in the street, which allows... Eunice and the Bob to land on it and accidentally get away on a subway train without even trying to. And um, it's it's sort of a cross-section of the hole in the street. I guess I like it. The speech balloons don't help. They're covering up some of the stuff that should be, um, that, you know, should be making it look like a nicer nicer panel. So then meanwhile, Marvel Girl and Professor X are still back home, and they realize that they are dealing with Lucifer, who Lucifer, I think... Looks, I kind of prefer the way Gavin drew him to the way Kirby draw him. He's sort of got more of a thing going on. He seemed very generic the way that Kirby drew him. There is a somewhat strange decision for what to do on a splash page on page 12, where you have Whisper's Tower shooting a beam at Professor X and zonking him out. There's a good panel on page 13 of him being mentally zonked. We then get to... A flashback, and I really like this flashback. It is similar to the great flashback in issue, I think it was 119, many years later, when that one, Xavier is flashing back to running into the Shadow King. Here we have a flashback to Tibet, one of Stanley's, well, I was going to say one of Stanley's favorite places, but this isn't Stanley, this is Roy Thomas. We've got Xavier with full use of his legs, walking and driving around Tibet, finds a sort of hidden walled city and realizes it is under the control of Lucifer, decides to lead a revolution, says, (laughs) I can render your nameless master helpless if you will help me storm his palace. And they lead a little meeting of the resistance when somebody drops a chandelier on them and they realize, oh, we've been betrayed. And uh, Savior finally manages to get free and get to Lucifer, who we see is working for another alien. We Well, we finally get confirmed that Lucifer is an alien. We see he's working for another alien called the Supreme One. And then, wait, is the Supreme One and Dominus the same thing? Or we have Lucifer no. working for the Supreme One who is working for Dominus? Something like no, that? No, I think Dominus is like the thing they're going to unleash or the plan that they have or something like that is the way I read it. But who knows? I don't know. And then uh, Lucifer drops a huge cinderblock on Professor Xavier, costing him the use of his legs. Then they talk about the coming of Dominus, and it is unclear what they mean. The X-Men return back to the mansion. Everyone is reunited, and they go flying off in a new, nicer-looking plane to deal with Lucifer. I think this is an excellent issue. I think it is great to have Eunice and the Bob back. I think it is an fun little plan to pretend to be X-Men. I think it's great to have Whisper back. Well, I think he's a far more interesting written character than he was under Lee, and I like the art of him better than I liked Kirby's. And I love, love, love the flashback. I think that this is, Gavin is just really coming to life when he gets to draw this Tibetan city and these Tibetan revolutionaries. And it feels like a good... Savage sort of Conan issue. This is 
really nice stuff. Yeah, page 14, panel 4. The dude with the turban and the beard there really looks like someone from, like, an Alex Toth story or something like that. Yeah. Clearly, Gavin is having tons of fun with this. Looks nothing like uh, it was in Tibet, but... (laughs) (laughs) Looks absolutely nothing uh, like I would imagine Tibet to be, except, you know, looking like it's on a high high plateau, but that's about it. Generally, I really do like the art in this issue. My one exception to that is the way that the beards are inked on Lucifer and the Supreme One. Uh, It just looks really weird. (laughs) Not a fan. But I guess it's like, well, they're aliens. Maybe that's not like a hairy beard. Maybe that's some kind of other... Alien beards, exactly. And then finally on the last page, uh, at one point, Gene is saying, anything's better than wearing this gadget another minute. And Scott says, quiet, Gene. Lucifer almost beat us before, if he's stronger now. And it's just like, wow, Scott being even more of a dick to her than usual. But, you know, I guess this is part of a storytelling thing and that she's then thinking, the way Scott snapped at me a while ago. So at least they're acknowledging that uh, Scott was really being a dick to her at that point uh and then the last thing is i noticed that the plane is actually just in a wing of the um of the mansion so you know it's kind of like those big mcmansions that you'll find that have the garage up front and it makes it look like it's you know just got windows like it's a room but it's just a place to park your three suvs or whatever right (laughs) that's what this is right here which is interesting uh all right so I believe that is all I have on this one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, overall, a, a good issue. And, um, yeah, I, as I said, I have – you have always disliked Gavin more – or Werner Roth more than I have. Uh, but I'm glad to see that um, we both agree that this is uh, done quite well. Yep. And there's a letter okay. from Frank Brenner on the last page who will go on to ah. become a great – Doctor Strange artist. Okay, so that is it for this month. I think these have been five pretty good books. I think that we've had some nice stuff. No stinkers. I would I would say this was stinker free. I'd agree. Yeah, sure. There was enough good stuff in uh, the ones that I wasn't a big fan of, that I wasn't a huge fan of, to uh, to say yeah, yeah. There are there are no, no stinkers in here, which is you know not always true. <laughs> and I would say the best of the five, best of the six, if we want to count Namor and Hulk differently, I'd say the best of the six was Thor. I thought I just, you know, Thor's, for Thor's bed alone, that was the best of the six. Sorry. <laughs> well, and, and his little ice, and his little <laughs> ice craft, uh, and the beast fish. And, <laughs> I mean, there's so many things about that particular story uh, that are really, really good. Okay, so I guess we should say our goodbyes for the moment. Thank you, everybody out there in podcast land, as always. We do this as a hobby for ourselves, but it certainly feels a lot better when we know that people are enjoying it. So uh, thank you very much. Okay, bye, everybody. Take care. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarbleRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.